The Other Side of Midnight presents From the Spiral To the Elliptical To the Lenticular To the Irregular To the Quasar's Galaxies Where are we in the cosmic evolutionary picture? Always remember to keep your eyes to the skies. The following conversations are cosmic conversations with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. That's right. I am very pleased uh, to be welcomed back oh, to welcome back to the program Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer who has a great deal of expertise in astronomy, space and a whole lot more. Also does a terrific podcast called The Dr. Sky Experience. He's kind enough to join us every 2 weeks. Steve, it is great to talk to you again. Well, good morning, Frank, and good morning to all the listeners out there. A Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, as we move into a new year. Hard to believe, right, Frank? So close to 2024. It's amazingly coming fast as we move around this big star, the sun. That, that is for sure. Hey, uh, if people have questions throughout the next hour, they can give us a call at 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Let me begin with this, though, Steve. You and I were uh, privileged to be on the Cats and Cosby radio show together yesterday talking yes. about this new secret X-37B spacecraft. But it was a kind of, a, as is the case when you have a lot of guests and only an hour to get to them, it was kind of a quick conversation, and a bunch of people remarked to me that they didn't fully take in what we were talking about, what you were talking about mainly, and uh, a lot of people may not have even heard it. They should make a habit of listening to that show every day, but if they didn't get to hear it, fill us in. What is the X-37B? What's the big deal? Well, it was good to be on with you and Katz and Cosby with John and Rita, but uh, this is interesting, Frank. The X-37B is not really a new space plane. It's been around for a while, and the good folks at Boeing and other aerospace contractors a while ago, developed this object, which kind of looks reminiscent like a miniature space shuttle. It's probably about 29 feet long, if you can measure it. Its wingspan is about 14 feet, but it's done an amazing series of flights around the Earth, some of them as long as this past one, over 900 days in orbit. So what do we think it is from what they tell us? Because it has a secret slash, you know, technology side to it. The secret side, many people believe that it's actually there for America's security and future technology in space, vis-a-vis the Space Force and potentiality for space warfare. But these missions that it's been on, and by the way, I want to make note of the fact that I've watched this many times here in Arizona and listeners to the program right now. There is possibility, you know, in future launches, as we're expecting one today on Wednesday night, you can actually see this. But what's so mysterious about it? is that it has the ability to change its orbit, maybe even cloak its orbit in space. Like if you see a satellite go by, like the space station, it's bright. But this object may have the capability of changing its orbit. Who knows? Maybe even cloaking itself. We don't know what that really means. But it's an interesting craft. And just to think now that just not the United States has one, the Chinese have actually developed one called the Shenlong. Their translation means the divine dragon. And guess what? Like many of these reminiscent spacecraft and aircraft, like an F-22, the Chinese have a copy of that. They've also developed this. So the level of space warfare where these objects go up, there's other things about this that are so mysterious. But uh, we'll give you as much information as we can. And some interesting stories about myself and a film crew years ago going down to the uh, Cape there. And as we were getting a kind of a private tour, so to speak, they warned that as the military, our you know crew, 
not to take pictures of what was in the hangar. And guess what was in the hangar? The, the X-37. <laughs> right. And one of our guys takes a camera and kind of holds it down below by the open door of the car. Hey, those military people are not stupid, but uh, we didn't get arrested. But there is some interest in this. And what's happening in the quick summation? The USSF-52 is this official launch. Tonight, Wednesday night, is the next window. But the good news, this is real quick, this is being launched now on SpaceX's Falcon Heavy, and the purpose, we believe, is to put it into an even higher orbit and maybe even a more long-duration mission. So it's exciting to see what we're doing here. Even half of it or three-quarters of it is considered uh, above top secret. Now, um, we've spoken a little bit about about UFOs, and if time permits, I want to uh, pick your brain on a couple of other new items throughout the course of the hour. But th- sure. there's been a lot of objects that uh, even experienced military pilots in the sky have not been able to identify or explain. Is there a possibility that other governments could have these sort of top-secret aircraft maybe something sort of similar to the X-37B, and that's kind of what some people have observed, thinking that they're UFOs at various times over the years? Well, Frank, as I mentioned before, the Chinese copied one called Shenlong. It had a, you know, a flight, they believe, in August of 2022. But the other things, like the UFO panel that we talked about many times, and as you've covered extensively in July, I really think they're two separate uh, type of uh, craft mm-hmm. or objects. Which leads me to believe that what they're talking about in those you know, hearings is really beyond that of the world, because we don't have anything that we know of vis-a-vis Tic Tac that goes zero to Mach 20 or whatever, goes underwater and makes left and right turns that would literally tear a human being apart from G-forces. So, and we also find out, I don't know if you saw the article, there's something new at a, a person who worked at Area 51 claims that his father or somebody in his family gave him information, and he described it as some kind of a large metallic football-shaped object in which the government tried to drill into and get metal samples or whatever it was made of, and they just basically couldn't do much to it because it's theoretically, what, otherworldly, amazing stuff. Now, the football-shaped object, is that also what's been referred to in some quarters as the the egg-shaped object, or is that something totally different? It very well could be, but the most prolific one that we know, and I know you've covered it extensively, and if the listeners haven't heard about it, are these tic-tac-shaped objects like a tic-tac mint that defies any kind of description, as those whistleblowers, you know, testified in in Congress in front of that, you know, hearing. But there are probably a whole variety of these, and if we believe David Grush and his testimony, which now seems more credible than ever, show us the evidence is what we need to find out, is that these these objects, whether they be football-shaped or other, allegedly, we have these craft, and wow, even more bizarre, the biologics are actual, uh, you know, creatures, beings, or extraterrestrials. Amazing stuff. All right, we're going to get to calls in a moment. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. This is uh, obviously the holiday season, uh, the Christmas season. I don't know that you and I are going to have another chance to uh, chat before Christmas, but uh, we know the story of the uh, the three wise men going to visit Jesus in the Bible, What do we know about the Christmas star, the star that the wise men may have followed? What was it? Well, Frank, I'm fortunate, like many people, to talk about this. And not a scholar in the biblical sense, but just going through the astronomical theories or even slightly astrological. 
We have these following theories. It may have been a supernova. It may have been a comet. It simply may have been a miracle, which I certainly can't dismiss. I would wholeheartedly believe by my you know, religious belief that that's entirely possible. But one of the most prolific answers to this, or the most logical one, is planetary conjunctions. And the big problem is, well, we don't really know the exact date of the birth of Jesus. That sounds so amazingly difficult for people maybe to comprehend, even myself studying this, because the calendar has changed. Gregorian calendar dates have shifted. So what we think in the quickest summation, anywhere between 1 BC and 6 or 8 BC, a series of planetary conjunctions took place, meaning that of Jupiter and Venus, the moon also in astrological or zodiac constellations like Leo and Aries, which had great significance to people in that particular time period, certain significance to those constellations, Aries and Pisces. But probably, if we really just cut to the chase on it, it probably is more likely a occultation. Now, what's that fancy word mean? The moon, ever so often, gets very close to certain bright planets like Venus or Jupiter or Mars. And when the moon, the bright edge or the dark edge, depending on what the phase of the moon is, the moon slides over that object. So there's also some credible stories about, and actually observations that were recorded, that this could either have been a series of planetary conjunctions or occultations that led those three wise men who more than likely came from Iraq on the long journey that we know, and of course had a great knowledge of not astronomy per se, but astrology. Hmm. And a symbolism and the lineup of these things may indeed have been more likely planetary objects or these occultations. Interesting. 800-848-9222. We'll kick things off with uh, Joe in Queens. Hi, Joe. Yeah, hi, Frank. Yeah, by the way, some came running. Uh, I knew that... Uh, What's her name? Uh, Shirley McLean was in it. I, I misheard you. Uh, I was uh, focusing in, in on the other uh, character, the other professor. But mm -hmm. I have a couple of questions. Uh, sure, I wanted yeah. to go back to Steve to the uh, these are hi you know history of the U.S. prehistory, as you would say. Uh, mm -hmm. The weather balloon uh, radar, I think, was invented by a woman, and the SST was in service, and they took it out although they had paying customers, but they did have a problem with the sonic bone, among other things, yes. I believe. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yes, the SST, I mean, if we're going to concentrate on one of those concerns, and I appreciate, Joe, happy holidays to you. We're yeah. talking about something here. There have been many females that, of course, have been, you know, great, and they haven't gotten a lot of credit over the years. But when we talk about the SST, obviously the major concern here was the apparent sonic booms that would be, you know, audible all across the United States and other parts of the world. But now, NASA's testing an aircraft, which is actually kind of cool. It's called the X-59, and as people look at it, it's this very strange shape, almost looks like a, a dagger. And it has the ability to, you know, this modern technology with aerodynamics to abate or lessen or even slowly cancel out a lot of the sonic booms. And why is that important, Joe? Because eventually, this ability to travel faster than Concorde without sonic booms this might be just a regular thing in the future, maybe 20, 30, or even 50 years from now, if we had to wait that long, that we could be on the other side of the earth in not hundreds of hours or 30 or 40 hours, but maybe six or seven hours to be anywhere in the world through this new thing, you know, technology lessening supersonic uh, booms. 
800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. My guest is Steve Cates. We're having some cosmic conversations with uh, Dr. Sky. Hey, speaking of stars, uh, what's the latest with Beetlejuice, the supergiant star Beetlejuice? How can people see that? When can they see it? And what's so significant about being able to see Beetlejuice? Well, interestingly, Frank, Beetlejuice, this big, giant, red supergiant, has been in the news this week, because just a few days ago, actually yesterday, we found out that this asteroid, a small asteroid by size, some 70 miles across, did exactly what I was referring to before when we talked about theories of the birth of the Christ child and what that significant was for the Christmas star. This asteroid actually got in the path, if you live, let's say, in southern Florida or other parts of the world, the astronomers look at this particular occultation when an asteroid, very rare, can cover up this star even for seconds. Remember, the asteroid's close to us. The star is 550 light years away. But we found out that it didn't dim it as much, but why would they even care about it? They were trying to help it determine the size of that star. So for a simplistic way of just, you know, describing it, if you took Betelgeuse and stuck it over the sun, its outer edges, radii, would go way out over to the asteroid bulk. But the dangers of this star, because it's relatively young, our sun's 4 billion years old, Betelgeuse is only 10 million years old, so it's used up all of its fuel, and it could, not to alarm people, go supernova. Why would that be alarming? 550 light years away is a significant sky event, and if it were to happen, let's say on this particular show, on the other side of midnight, as we talk cosmic conversations, you got breaking news that on the other side of the world, or even here in the dark of night, we had an object like that literally go supernova. Here's how bright it would be, according to the experts. It would shine as bright as a half full moon for three months in the sky. Now talk about a significant object to maybe change our worldview about something that goes on deep into the universe. This particular star could blow at any time, and since it's 500 and some light years away, It may have already happened, and the light packet, think Star Trek-wise, that whole big energy ball is still traveling through time and space. It will happen. The people, if you want to see it, here's the answer. If you look into the eastern sky right around 9 p.m., Orion rises on its side, and the bright star, you can't miss it, orangey red, is the star Betelgeuse, and its translation literally means the left shoulder of the giant when translated from Arabic. I like that. All right. Uh, We're going to continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, in a moment. There's one open line if you want to try and uh, jump on board with a question of your own. 800-848-9222. In a moment, we'll tell you the plans for the big meteor shower and how you can see it. Also, you help you do some uh, solar eclipse planning, and there could very well be a solar storm hitting Earth that might cause some serious problems with your Internet usage. We'll get into that and a whole lot more straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. about drops of Jupiter. We have the go-to guy when it comes to Jupiter, all the other planets in our solar system, and many of the planets outside of our solar system. We are having... Cosmic conversations. Uh, my guest is Steve Cates. If you're interested in what we're talking about, you can uh, check out his podcast. It's called The Dr. Sky Experience. Uh, check it out at redapplepodcastnetwork.com or just search Dr. Sky Experience on any podcast app. Uh, we're going to get to your calls in just a moment. 800-848-9222. Steve, let me uh, first ask you, though, a question I asked my friend Lloyd Lindsay Young earlier in the week about the weather for the forthcoming year. Well, I brought a son, uh, excuse me, uh, someone gave my son a sled for the winter last year. We didn't use it once <laughs> because there was no snow. I know uh, maybe this is not a big concern for people that live in Arizona as you do, but what is the farm Almanac suggesting the weather is going to be like for next year? Well, the Farmer's Almanac, as we all know, they have this secret formula, which nobody really knows how they do the forecast. But since maybe 1792, Mr. Thomas, the originator, has this somewhere locked up like the secret sauce of what Coca-Cola's formula it is. But to answer this, if we begin with the winter of this 2023 to 2024, they're saying that a good portion of the Northeast should be mild and snowy down to the southern area of Florida, down into say Georgia, mild and wet, way down into Florida, mild and dry. Where I live here, cool and wet and along the Pacific coast, cold and dry up in the Seattle and Northwest, and down, of course, to the Los Angeles area in the Southland up to San Francisco, cool and wet weather. But that doesn't tell us anything specifically. But if we had time, which obviously we don't, you can find this out in each level of, or each region, I should say, of the United States, they actually go by dates and show you what the weather should be. But it's quite fascinating. And to speak about Lloyd Lindsay Young, I love the guy. We had him on our programs many times here in Arizona. And boy, I'll tell you, you never can forget that hello that he gives out there. Isn't that incredible? Love that guy. Wow. Uh, I, uh, that is uh, what's going to be very interesting in terms of uh, you know whether we get to use that sled. certainly seems that way. In general, <laughs> though, in general, though, the Farmer's Almanac, we consider to be a pretty reliable predictor of seasonal weather. Yes. 
And yeah. it's also something that should be noted too. Robert B. Thomas, the, he was a bookseller, a school teacher, and he was also an amateur astronomer. So it goes back to say that not only was interest in weather and things that go on about planting seasons, which is great, you know, if you're a person who wants to know when the freeze comes and when not to plant something, it also goes into great detail about astronomical events, and there's going to be so many of them. And maybe a good segue, if it's okay by you, is to talk about what's really going on right now, Frank, over our heads, right now as we're speaking live. We're in the throes of one of the most incredible meteor showers of mm. all of the year. And this one's known as the Geminids. And why do I say that? I mean, I've been watching meteor showers. I'm sure many listeners out there have followed these probably for the last 50 plus years. Yeah, I'm that old. But yet the, the one about the Geminids is so interesting. Quickly, it's a meteor shower that we know do, doesn't necessarily come from comets. Now, most comets are the source of these meteor showers. Think of like the exhaust pipe on a, on a vehicle, the material that comes out, the particles, the carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide. These meteors, or excuse me, these comets, when they heat up from the sun, the sun is pulverizing the surface with solar wind. So it's like somebody, you know, sandblasting the surface. So those material pieces that you see, many of which, this is a good analogy like it to a cereal, one of my favorite, the size of grape nut little particles, about the same size, that's a good analogy, that's about the average size of these meteors that come out of a meteor shower. So you're going to see it. You look into the northeast sky at sunset. Now, this is tonight, Wednesday night for the east coast, still Tuesday for us here. But the constellation Gemini rises and all night, right near two bright stars, you can't miss it in Gemini, called Castor and Pollux. These meteors are coming through. The peak should be at, as we move into late Tuesday, excuse me, late Wednesday, past the 13th, into the 14th. So all night long, and since there's no moon in the sky, this might be one of the better years for the Geminids, but you know what you got to endure in the Northern Hemisphere? Cold weather. But it's well worth it if you uh, have never seen a meteor show. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 800-848-9222. I'm hoping to get a look at that. Uh, let me say uh -huh. hi to uh, Bill in Huntington. Hello, Bill. Okay. I have a fundamental question. Good morning. The formation of the Earth's sun had one theory since 1910, and it hasn't changed. The mm -hmm. interstellar gas, it condenses into a, into a blob until and it gained a, a rotation and it ignited. Okay. Yet 40% of the stars in the sky are either double stars or members of multiple systems. Correct. And Alpha Centauri is a double star with some other star that don't matter. Okay. Mm -hmm. So why yeah. isn't the Earth's sun a double star? Hmm. Very interesting. You know, Bill, this is one of the most amazing things. I and mean, I was in college. I still can't understand it. And I'm always humble and honest here. If I don't know something, I'm going to tell you. But here's what I do know. Even in those classes in college physics and science, and many of people out there who maybe even have more, you know, technical knowledge of this, I always had a hard time believing this. Gas and dust, and I'll be the professor here, and I'm sitting in the audience, and he or she's telling me this. Gas and dust, over the course of a long time, meaning billions of years, spins gravitationally around the source, and then magically it collapses over time. Remember, time is the big thing. And the process of fusion starts, meaning the reactive force like the sun, too hot to burn. But it's interesting. Why are some star systems like Alpha Centauri or multiple star system? 
The reality is we don't know because probably in the time of their gestation or their creation, they were split off in those big blobs, as we call them, or nodules. And then they also formed independent collapse and into independent you know, fusion to create the fires of fusion. We don't know that. But it's interesting. If you look at the sky at night, you see so many stars that are double stars. There's a good example here quickly. If you look into the northeast sky in our winter sky, there's a bright star called Capella. C-A-P-E-L-L-A is what it's, how it's spelled. But why is it important? It's 45 light years away. It's sunlight, meaning it's the same kind of temperature but it's actually built two stars that are identical to each other by a very small gap in between them. Another one of those conundrums. Nobody knows the answer to that. But again, I don't know about you, I still have a hard time even accepting the concept that those things do collapse over time. But remember, it's billions of years. Hmm. What an amazing question, Bill. Yeah, thank you, Bill. 800-848-9222. A lot of folks know that uh, the galaxy we're in is named for the candy bar. They call it the Milky Way. And uh, fans of the TV series Star Trek may remember there was one episode, I think only one episode in the original series where they actually were able to either travel to the another galaxy, the nearest galaxy, or get a visitor from the nearest galaxy. That's how vast the Milky Way galaxy is, that even at warp nine, you're still not able to leave it that easily. What are we hearing about the looming collision of the Milky Way galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy? Well, Frank, you bring up a good point, like I was mentioning to Bill. Still, in my mind, and for many people's minds, how do stars come together, or created, that is, by this gravity collapse and fusion? But let's talk about this thing called the Andromeda galaxy and the Milky Way. Edwin Hubble, when he was working in California in the 1920s, he first came up with the concept called island universes. In other words, before that, we thought that these smudges in the sky were all part of the Milky Way, like within this 150,000 light year, you know, big bubble of stars, billions of them. He was one of the first to identify that there are other galaxies out there. And one of the brightest objects that you can see in the nighttime sky, in dark skies, underline the word dark skies, is the Andromeda galaxy. And in many of our programs here in Arizona, I'm sure all over, People take the telescope out and they show you the Andromeda galaxy. Why? It's 2.4 million light years away. But Frank, this is what's happening. We know that when stars and objects in the heavens have a red shift, it means that they're moving away from us. If it has a blue shift, we see it in the spectrum that it's moving toward us. Guess what? The Andromeda galaxy has a blue shift. And it's way larger than the Milky Way it probably has a couple of trillion stars inside it. The good news, we have plenty of time to prepare. How much time before we actually have an interaction? About two to three, maybe even four billion years. So hopefully people can pay their taxes, do their shopping, and get every, you know, their lives in order, but not to be ridiculous. That, once it happens, it would be the most devastating thing we could ever imagine because it will form probably this mega-sized hmm. elliptical-shaped galaxy And sad to say, stars will literally be eaten up, pulled away from their position in the sky. Something horrific that no science fiction movie has gotten correct, I'm sure, yet. So just know, Andromeda is heading toward us, but it's a beautiful sight in the telescope. And you can even see it in binoculars or even the naked eye if you really 
at a dark sky. Well, and we, at least we have plenty of time to figure something out in the meantime. <laughs> Al is here in New York City. Hi, Al. Yes, uh, Dr. Sky, I've got two questions. Good morning, sir. Very quick questions. The first question is, the explosion or nova or supernova of Betelgeuse, even though it's 500 light years away, that's a pretty powerful bang. And that radiation is going to be going off into all directions of space, even towards the Earth. What would be the consequence of life on Earth as a result of that? The second question, uh, I, I, I will give you when you answer the first one. Sure. Okay. The Beetlejuice star, if let's say it's already happened, let's just say in the mind's eye it's happened. Yes. And let's say in the next two years we see the we see the big brightness like a half a moon for a couple of months. More than likely, that's not going to have any problem effects to the Earth. Why? At a distance of 500 light years, we're still pretty much out of that danger zone. But the real problem, Al, is let's say if it was an Alpha Centauri system, let's say Betelgeuse, which lucky for us is not. And you have to wonder, Al, why are these stars, like when I do these night sky tours, we point out this star is 100 light years away, that one's 10,000. If you just change the position of those stars, which we can't do, lucky for us is what I'm saying, but if an object the size of Betelgeuse were as close as four and a half light years away, you bet we would have some problems. But there is a theory out there, and it's kind of interesting, that many mass extinctions on the Earth have happened from two, two predominantly you know, different incidents in science. One, this large effect of a supernova explosion sending gamma radiation to the Earth. And the other one is this story about these gamma ray bursters. What are those? This energy that's off the charts, which actually could have caused the extinctions in the past on Earth to change the DNA. If it happened, let's say, within the distance of Betelgeuse for one of these you know, gamma ray bursters, that it would be a dangerous thing. So it's crazy. But you had a part two. I'm sorry, sir. Yes. The part two is what is the current state in his short statement of uh, the condition of radio astronomy at this time? Radio astronomy is at a really high point. But the problem is nowadays we're seeing so much interference. Ask many of these radio state, you know, radio telescope observers. They're now getting so much spurious in interference from even the satellite band that's above us in the sky. And not to knock technology, but what Starlink is doing and what Bezos wants to do. And low Earth orbit is just simply the highway is very crowded. What we really need, and this is what astronomers agree on from the radio science world, radio telescope, we need someday to place a radio telescope, large as it could be, on the far side of the moon, because that pretty much blocks out everything that's coming from us here on planet Earth. But it's amazing, even still with what I just said, which might sound negative, now radio astronomy is really giving us some incredible you know, stories and answers to the problems of what are quasars, what are these gamma ray bursters, and what are black holes? So we just need one in a quiet zone, and that's kind of hard to find. <laughs> it's interesting that you mentioned uh, interference because there was a story yes. uh, published a couple of weeks ago which was predicting mm -hmm. that there was going to be a pretty serious solar storm. I think it was on or around yes. December 1st that was predicted by forecasters to potentially cause Internet blackouts, radio problems, uh, GPS problems. They sure. call this a uh, coronal mass ejection, which you've talked about before. What actually ended up 
happening with this solar storm? Were there any problems? Did we actually see the solar storm or experience the solar storm? And what were the effects of it, if any? Great question, Frank. And all I can say is nothing that we can talk about where satellites fell out of the sky. There were radio interruptions in frequencies that are down around 20 megahertz. The ham radio operators, I gave a talk last week to a lot of you know those folks, and they were concerned about these solar flare activities and what happens. So simply, high-frequency radio, which a lot of aircraft use, let's say you're flying over the pole, that could be disrupted to the point where you're hearing static and not able to communicate clearly. But what's so fascinating about this is no real direct effect other than beauty, you know, the beauty of the northern and southern lights. People see that all the time in the high latitudes and far southern latitudes. But, Frank, you brought up something that you sent me, if you don't mind me just moving down the same path here. One of the... One of the listeners, I guess, wrote you an email. I guess her name was Jean, and it all relates to what we're talking about. She wanted you to ask me, and I'm reading this, what happens when you have these coronal holes in the sun? In other words, 60 times the Earth's size. So to answer Jean and to let the audience know, which is also part of the discussion of these coronal mass ejections, a coronal hole, the corona is the atmosphere of the sun, not a breathable atmosphere. And the strangest thing in physics is, why is the corona millions of degrees hot in temperature when it's out there in space compared to the surface of the sun, we don't understand that yet. But what we do know is when the corona, because of the magnetic fields on the sun around sunspots, open up, the corona actually gets what we consider to be a hole because it's kind of like a lower temperature region. And to make it simple, which is the only thing you can do here to open people's minds, that hole lets in more solar wind See, all these particles from the sun travel through a stream of particles that, like a garden hose, pushing out from the sun. So when you have a coronal hole, to answer Jean's concern, you wind up having more solar wind pushing out of the sun. And if you happen to have behind that hole a large flare on the sun, which pushes that coronal mass ejection from the surface of the sun, it tends to open up since there's nothing blocking it, and it releases so much radiation and energy. But... There is, not to alarm people, a massive sunspot group on the far side of the sun, spacecraft tell us. It should be coming around the left edge of the sun, maybe in a day or two or three. But that also, as the bigger the sunspot groups get, when those magnetic fields snap, get ready if we're in the line of sight, like a direct blast of a shotgun, if you happen to be in line of sight. That could cause the Earth to have massive geomagnetic storms. 800-848-9222. Ed is in Westchester. What's your question, Ed? Hi, Dr. Skye. Um, my Good question morning, is, as, as, as a man of science and a man of logic, how does one rationalize the very beginning, beginning of time? And I mean, before the Big Bang Theory, and say a religious person might say, well, God has always been there, and God has always mm-hmm. he's been there since the beginning. There is no, no such thing as anything but God. How does a man of science rationalize how it all began? Well, as I said before, great questions, and and more into the philosophic, and I love it. And I wish we had, you know, hours to discuss this. But in our short moment today, our short, you know, opportunity, it's just that I have a hard time with this, you know, studying physics like other people out there. There is the whole concept that time might just be an illusion. And it goes back to this amazing theory that a good friend of ours, we had this gentleman, Rizwan Burke, who's a billionaire who's in the gaming industry, he wrote a book called The Simulation Hypothesis. I have a hard time understanding what time is because what you and I are talking about right now is this momentary slice of something. And what's that something? You know, what's consciousness? What's reality? 
But in the simplest way, which is still very complicated, people say that time is like an arrow that moves forward. In other words, the arrow of time goes forward. It's virtually impossible in our world of understanding to go backwards. But see, I also believe in the spiritual too. So a lot of scientists have a hard time with that because if it's not empirical facts, just like I said before about the story of the Star of Bethlehem, what if it really was just a true miracle? We can't prove it. But this is fascinating stuff, Ed, and, and I really appreciate the, the, the concerns there. Wishing you and yours uh, a great holiday. We're going to continue with uh, our cosmic conversations with Dr. Sky in a moment. We'll continue straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. Every man has a flaming star, a flaming star over his shoulder. And when a man sees his flaming star, he knows his time, his time has come. Flaming star, don't shine on me, flaming star. Elvis Presley singing about the stars. Uh, We're going to talk about another musical legend, Frank Sinatra, who, at least on the west coast of this country, is still celebrating his birthday. We'll get into it with uh, Elliot Gordon in uh, just a few minutes. But for now, we're having some cosmic conversations with Dr. Sky. He's a veteran radio and TV broadcaster, also goes by the name of Steve Cates. You can check out his podcast at the Dr. Sky Experience. Steve, let me share with you this tweet. A listener just tweeted at me, and people could find me on Twitter, at Frank Morano. Uh, Sharon writes, the hour with Dr. Sky is the best hour on all of radio, period, full stop. Is he on Twitter? Would love to follow him. Thanks. Steve, I think a lot of people that do catch this segment on podcast uh, might be uh, thinking the same thing. Are you on uh, social media? Well, I do have one for Stephen Cates under my regular name. But Frank, I hate to say this, but I'm always honest. We're working on all these things because with a kind comment like that, I'd sure like to keep a copy of that too in my little file drawer here. But just no, seriously, that's something that we're working on. And I think what we'll be doing is talking to the powers of WABC radio here, you know, talk radio 77, WABC, how we might be able to expand some of the links to connect because that seems to be the portal that I, of course, uh, am so proud of to have people go to the Dr. Sky experience for now. But uh, we'll be working on that. Some surprises coming in the new year, 2024. And also, Frank, let's not forget, only 118 days to the big solar eclipse. Absolutely. Solar eclipse. I was just going to ask this you about that. What, what's going on yeah. with, the, uh, with the solar eclipse? Well, this is interesting, Frank. And, and we go to the capitalist side on this because we're proud of this for safety reasons. We'd like people to go to get the solar glasses ahead of time this time. And what the experience we had in Albuquerque, we had 80,000, no exaggeration, 80,000 people standing around, not for me, but for the balloon fiesta. And a lot of those people were wondering, how do you get the solar glasses? Because if you don't, let's say we have children, like uh, Les Carmine, and children, of course, that are a little older, that want to see this, and also adults all the way to seniors. So we recommend do this. Go to this website, TSE, 
TSE, the number 17, solareclipse.com. And if they go there, they'll see the different varieties of solar glasses that we have. They're relatively inexpensive. And simply, not to do a commercial, but I guess here it is, if you go to the order line and just type in DR Sky, you'll get a 10% on the, off the discount off the order. Now, why are we saying that so far ahead of time? Because we've noticed this. Our team, which is another company that, we, that we're part of, they were at the eclipse in 2017. And Frank, they sold over 200,000 pairs of these little tiny things that people wanted. And at the time, or just about a week before the eclipse, nobody knew where to get them. And there were all these problems. So these are certified, ISO certified, you know, the real deal. But on the other side of the eclipse, it starts off in the Pacific Ocean. It hits Mazatlan in Mexico. It goes through the mountainous territory of northern Mexico. The longest of the eclipse will be there, pretty inaccessible. For us in the United States, it's probably best down toward the southern part of Texas. Now, we're hoping to be in a town, maybe this isn't confirmed, but we're hoping to be in a little town called Kerrville, Texas, in Texas Hill Country. Why? Weather forecasts predict a 65% chance of clear skies. But how about this? For the WABC audience and people in the Northeast, this total solar eclipse, right, comes downtown Buffalo, downtown Cleveland, Indianapolis. Weather forecasts hopefully will be good. Maybe will be clouded out, let's say, in Texas. And the opposite is true <clears throat> up in the Northeast, excuse me. So the point is, you want to have a safe way to view this, to experience it. Totality will be at maximum for people in that eclipse, and we have plenty of time to talk about this, hopefully, in future shows. You will get to see the rarest celestial event, a wow. true, true cosmic event. I've seen many. People need to see this. So we'll talk more about that with your permission as we get into the new year. Certainly. Uh, let me squeeze in at least one or two more calls here. Bobby is in New Jersey. Hi, Bobby. Thank you, Frank. The Dr. Skies, I love your show. I'm out in the field right now in Middletown, New Jersey, walking my dog, and it's crystal right. clear. It's perfect. I'm looking towards the city. I have the big dipper behind me. I got a Ryan awesome. south to the southwest. I seen, I seen some flashes when I first came out. I was like, wow. And, and then it slowed down. Yeah. I haven't seen many. But I just hope the mm -hmm. weather tomorrow is just clear because it's perfect. Man. There's a lot of light pollution. I hope so. New York. But, but that's, you're you're our man question. in the field. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Let me ask you one other question, Doc. Is there historic precedence for the star of Bethlehem? I know they could follow uh, orbits of planets for a thousand years. I'll, I'll hang up and listen to you guys. Thank you so much. Well, there's really no confirmed theory on this. That's why I said before, if you missed it, pretty much the general consensus is a planetary series of planetary conjunctions, Jupiter, Saturn, the moon covering up, you know, Jupiter or, or Venus even. So there's no general consensus of what happened. But, hey, let's go even into the plausible area of whether it even was a miracle. We don't know. Possibly a supernova. We doubt that because we know what happened in the sky then. There's no record of that officially. Comets, probably not, Bobby, that we found out that there was a comet at the time of Caesar's death. But that was Halley's Comet and another comet. But it wasn't around the time period of, let's say, 1 B.C. to 6 or 8 B.C., that wide, you know, margin of what the, the birth of the Christ child. And most people say, I'm not a biblical scholar, but that the birth of the Christ child was probably in the spring of the year. So keep looking up there because you've seen a few meteors, more to come. And thanks for that live update in the field. Steve, uh, it's now December of 2023. NASA had said that it would land astronauts on the moon by December of 2025. That's only two years away. Any chance NASA makes that? 
I doubt it. And I wish they could or wish they would. I hope they do. Excuse me. But I doubt it. And, and here's the problem. If you go back to the Office of Management and Budget, they're looking at Artemis being, you know, a very expensive platform. You know, kudos to Musk. And he's launching his big Starship platform. Hopefully tonight we'll get to see this particular X-37B launched on this fantastic rocket, the SpaceX Falcon mm-hmm. Heavy. But I doubt very much if we're going to get there that short of time. It's a, it's an, you know, I hope it happens. But the reason is there's a lot more we need to do to make it right. And here's another bit of trivia real quick. 51 years ago, right now, Apollo 17 made a record by not only landing on the moon, but with this one, with the lunar rover, Frank, it set a speed record of 11.18 miles per hour on the surface of the moon back in 1972. How about that for speed records? <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, Steve, before we run out of time here, any yeah. other important live sky updates that people should be aware of? Anything that uh, they should keep an eye out for or a pair of binoculars out for within the next two weeks? Absolutely. If you look in the evening sky right into the east, that big bright thing you see is Jupiter. And that in a pair of binoculars will give you what Galileo did back in January of 1610. If you hold them steady, you may see the little moons. Telescopes will show it much better. Saturn's still high up into the southwest at sunset. In a telescope, the rings are now about eight degrees pitched to our angle of view. And then again, this meteor shower, which goes on. And then finally, on the 27th, the last full moon of the year, the beautiful cold or long night full moon, that happens right after Christmas, right around the 27th. So great things to see. Always check us out at the Dr. Sky Experience. A new update there for people that want a more in-depth analysis of sky views. Plus, as you know, Frank, other topics that we talk about, American exceptionalism and very special guests from the music world. We just love it. And thank you and John and everyone for having me as part of your great station. Hey, uh, I'm not going to be able to let you go without getting your reaction to any updates on the flying car. We've been hearing about the flying car at the very least since the Jetsons era. It's looking like the flying car is actually coming closer to reality. Steve, how long until I'll be able to get one of these flying cars and fly to work and avoid all this traffic congestion? Well, flying to work may be the thing, depending on the cities and, you know, the density of population. But the switchblade that's being developed is an interesting concept. We interviewed the gentleman, uh, Sam, who's the owner of that company. We had to go back into history. If you look at 1949, you had the thing called the aero car. But I think, Frank, it's going to be probably another 15 years before even this stuff is available, you know, to the public. They have two versions, I think, switchblade. One is visual flight role, where you fly by seeing things. And then you have, of course, what you have is instrument flight rules, a little higher priced product. But that would be really cool. And uh, I'd like to be uh, with you when you uh, first fly it and videotape it. That would be cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, I, I think it's probably a little outside of my budget for, uh, for now. Me too, Frank. Um, Me too. I, I don't know if you'd be going to be able to answer this in 40 seconds or less, but they say a tomato mystery that had baffled the geniuses at NASA for eight months has finally been solved. Um, you know what? In fact, rather than ask you to solve a mystery in 40 seconds, let's save this for our conversation <laughs> okay. in two weeks. Uh, Dr. Scott. Steve Cates, thank you so much for the time. Have a great Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. In the words of the great Casey Kasem, uh, keep reaching for the stars, but always keep your feet on the ground. We'll talk Sinatra straight ahead.